Well, the idea of um, investors and their protection. Um, in about 2001, I published a paper in the European Journal of Law Reform, and I was arguing there that what we have is the development of an international legal framework that offers opportunities to investors to challenge and control state action through what some people are describing a regulatory chill or a regulatory freeze. Now, this regulatory freeze is the consequence of the state's own reluctance to regulate in areas where they're worried that foreign investors might bring claims alleging violations of treaty rights. And what I concluded in that paper was that we have ever-expanding definitions in investment tribunals of what expropriation means. And these ever-expanding definitions have got actually a larger, out, um, larger consequence than the outcome of particular cases. They create an environment within which uh, states are constantly afraid to take policy decisions that upset investors, even if they've got a clear democratic mandate to do so. And I thought at the time that this was a very worrying development. Now, since then, or, you know, as I was writing all that stuff, we also had the, uh, the debt crisis developing and the financial crisis more generally. What the financial crisis has meant in the European context is that states have, at least in the European periphery, they seem to have regained their desire to regulate, faced with um, severe fiscal problems and uh, severe disruption brought about by the recession in the south of Europe specifically, they have begun to change the law and change the way that they deal with investors. Um, one could argue that this brings a complete reversal of the situation that I was examining in 2001. The problem is that even though states now seem to have regained their desire to legislate and they've broken out of their you know, so-called regulatory freeze, investors are still there and they're still very willing to litigate and arbitrate in order to enforce the rights that are given to them by treaties. We will examine this today by looking at a series of contemporary actions that you find in arbitral tribunals. And we will look at the examples from uh, Greece, where uh, investors have been suing Greece for the haircut it implemented on government bonds in 2012. Um, and we will also look at uh, actions that are emerging against Spain uh, with, for the change of regulatory policy that Spain had as regards renewable energy and you know, uh, solar um, installations in particular. So what we're talking about today in summary is the idea of investor state dispute settlement, this ISDS, um, and we're going to see the way it is used against Greece and Spain. And that hopefully will give us the opportunity to reflect on what these processes mean for the South of Europe, what it means about uh, economic crisis, what it means about recovery. Greece, um, I was thinking what sort of picture to get to demonstrate the problem. Um, and, you know, I think this is a wonderful one that combines both the idea of a haircut and the idea of the Europe in, in one concise little picture. Um, now, if you don't exactly know what happened in Greece, I will offer you a little bit of a background. Um, in March 2012, uh, holders of Greek state bonds were offered a swap with new ones because Greece found itself insolvent and it couldn't actually pay the existing bonds and its existing obligations. Now, what happened is that they got a deal to change their existing bonds with new ones. Um, this represented a significant share cut, so they got a significant reduction in the value of their bonds. 
this haircut was roughly equivalent to 53.5%, so almost 54% of value was lost. Um, the majority of the holders of that, that they agreed with this. So um, at the beginning of March uh, 2012, you had about 146 billion euros that accepted the exchange offer. The total outstanding obligation was about 177 billion. So a good proportion, about mm, you know more than 90% of the bondholders accepted this deal. And the reason why they accepted this deal is because the vast majority of the Greek debt stock, um, about 93% of it, was governed by Greek law. So what the government did, of course in collaboration with its European partners, it instituted into its bonds a clause uh, that is known as a collective action clause that entitled the majority of the bondholders to vote and accept the swap with the new bonds. Now, if you're unfamiliar with uh, capital markets or bond markets, um, this works in very similar ways to um, an annual general meeting of a corporate. Effectively, what happens in a general meeting is that if the majority of shareholders want to do something, um, the minority has uh, limited chances to block this. In a similar way, within a bond issue, if there is a collective action clause, the majority, or if the majority of the bondholders accept to do something, then the minority cannot object. So this is a mechanism that people have thought what would be an appropriate way to deal with few people that do not want to participate in the deal. Now, why does everybody? Why would everybody participate in such a deal, considering that they're losing more than fifty percent of the value of the bonds? Well, the answer is that if they didn't do this, then the country would go bankrupt, and then they would get nothing at all. And in fact, the situation was pretty hairy in 2012, and it was widely anticipated that Greece would actually default on its entire bond stock. Um, now, what we have then, um, this was called the private sector involvement, this deal, it, it's got the, uh, the acronym PSI. Um, the, this critical question after such a deal is, what happens with some people who actually got dragged into this but they didn't wish to participate. They didn't think that this was such a great idea. So what happens to the minority in these votes? Uh, the minority of the bondholders who, who wish to hold out, as they say, or the, they wish not to participate. Now, what happens with these people is that they get pretty upset and they will try whatever they can to seek legal options out of this. And the legal options that people have found, in fact, has to do with protections that they get out of bilateral investment treaties. Now, bilateral investment treaties are treaties between two nations where they promise to do nice things for their investors. They say that they will protect investments and respect them and try and promote them, and they offer to the incoming investors of the other jurisdiction a series of nice things uh, that are going to, of course, entice them to come in, but also ensure that they don't get mistreated once they're in there. Um, now, why would somebody um, in that situation, somebody who has uh, accepted due to a vote in the bond issue, accepted this haircut and accepted the swap with the new bonds, why would they seek protection through investment treaty arbitration using the terms of a bilateral investment treaty? The answer is that there is no link between these two mechanisms. One mechanism is a purely contractual one, 
collective action clauses exist in a contract or have been introduced in the contract, then people exercise those uh, rights, they vote a certain way, you've got a certain outcome. There is no link between this and the procedure in investment protection. Because bilateral investment treaties say that the state will behave in particular ways. The state will protect investors. The state will guarantee certain things. Now, what we've got um, is a situation where investors have started thinking, utilizing this investor state uh, dispute resolution mechanism to protest the losses that they suffer under the haircut. And they have to overcome this particular issue with bilateral investment treaties that say the state needs to be uh, the source of the problem for the investor. So you might be sitting there um, hearing about this thing for the first time and thinking, hang on a second, if um, this is a sort of privately generated deal that the majority of the bondholders accept to do something, right? Um, and they accept this haircut because they think it would be more risky to wait for Greece to, to pay them back fully, then why should this be the fault of the Greek government? So the first issue that one has to face is one of jurisdiction. Why is this the fault of the government? Why does it generate this investor arbitration type disputes? Um, and if it is the fault of the government, does this cover everything? Are we talking about any sort of objection that any investor might have that then becomes a state problem that then leads to these difficult to understand types of arbitration? These collective action clauses, right, they weren't pre-existing in the bonds. So they weren't there when these people went and bought them. They were introduced by state act. Greece passed a law that said, from now on, we are introducing retrospectively um, well, from now on, is, you know, from that point onwards, every new bond is going to have these things. But we're also introducing retrospectively collective action clauses in our entire debt stock. So something that you didn't know that wasn't in the stock uh, in the bond prospectus when you bought them has suddenly become a part of it, and it's become a part of it out of a government action. It was a change in the law that introduced these things. This very interestingly provides the link between what you would have in a normal contractual situation, and now a state action that might actually trigger investor claims, people complaining that the state has done something nasty to them. So this is part one of this debate. How does like a contractual argument generate an investment dispute? It is the action of the state. And in this case, we have Greece um, incorporating these collective action clauses retrospectively. Secondly, you might argue, hang on a second, I thought that investment arbitration is about investors, people who actually do stuff, people who go in, they build bridges, they fund airports, they fund, you know, hydroelectric dams, that sort of thing. So how come somebody who just bought a bond um, comes under the definition of investor arbitration? Well, here, Argentina, that I see some people mentioned in the chat earlier, um, Argentina becomes interesting because Argentina has been sued exactly for this type of thing. Um, an interesting case that you might want to have a look at, and I'm going to give you all these references later on if you wish. Um, an interesting case from Argentina is the case of Abaclat. Um, I can write this in the textbook for you um, to see the spelling. Now, this was a case where a whole bunch of Italian investors complained that um, Argentina 
with its default, had violated the rights of Italian bondholders who had actually bought the Argentinian bonds. Um, now, these people just made a financial investment in the same way that somebody goes and buys shares, right? Um, so if they made a financial investment, why are they considered investors protected under a bilateral investment treaty? In <laughs> Abaclat, the arbitral tribunal that looked at this hasn't reached a conclusion yet as to the substantive parts of the dispute, but they've reached a conclusion as to the jurisdictional bits. And they said that financial investments do come within the definitions of um, what is covered by a bilateral investment treaty. So the fact that um, Argentina failed to keep its obligations under its bond contracts, the fact that it intervened with its sovereign power uh, to change the terms of those contracts entitles investors to turn up and um, argue that treaty rights are being violated. So to sum up what we've said so far, um, we're thinking about investor state arbitration. And we're thinking about this new mechanism, something that is a dispute, res uh, dispute resolution mechanism outside the national courts that suddenly comes in and has a say in significant decisions as to how states around their territories, significant policy decisions in times of crisis. And we've seen that the avenue for these things to happen is the fact that a state action appears to violate investor expectations, and investor expectations are defined in very, very broad ways. So perhaps to understand this um, a little bit uh, better, we can look at a particular case study, um, a case that actually has gone to the tribunals at the moment and is involved in Greece. Slovakian uh, banks. Um, now, um, excuse me for the, the pictures on the, um, on the PowerPoint. I was just looking for the randomest thing to represent Slovakia and then the randomest thing to represent Greece, and this is what I came up with. Um, now, what do we have with the, the Slovaks here? Well, we've got the um, Slovakian Postal Bank, right? Uh, this entity that's called uh, Postova Banka. Now, they are one of the people complaining at the moment that they've lost money in the Greek haircut. And it's not only them, a lot of other people are queuing up behind them. And it, I think it's important to state at this point that when we're talking about investors in bonds, we're not talking only about big hedge funds, big multinational financial corporations. It's not only Goldman Sachs. There's a whole bunch of uh, small and medium-sized banks, small and medium-sized firms, um, a very significant number of small bondholders, in fact, that put a lot of their money in these things in similar ways that um, you would go here in the UK and buy a national, uh, national uh, investment uh, bond. Right, uh, the things that the government makes available, and they say we give you like a slightly above average rate of interest, and this is guaranteed by the government, and it's the safest thing in the world. So a lot of the bondholders that lost money in the Greek haircut in 2012 were actually very small bondholders, people who put you know their kids' college money uh, in a state bond. Um, now I'm not, um, you know, I'm not as um, as friendly to the to the corporates and uh, to the Slovaks in this case, but just in case everybody's thinking that you know we don't care much about this discussion because the bondholders are always like big nasty capitalists, this is not always the case. 
Okay, now, Greece and um, its particular bilateral investment treaties. Uh, Greece has signed so far 43 bilateral investment treaties with countries within and outside the European Union. And the provisions within those bilateral investment treaties are very close to the kind of things that you're going to find if you look at the treaties Argentina was signing that led to this um, to this action in Abaclat that I mentioned. Now, the, Greece, the, the Greek bilateral investment treaties promise to offer uh, equal treatment. They promise to offer prompt, adequate and effective compensation in case of expropriation. They promise to do a lot of nice things. Um, now, when our friends here, Postova Banka, went and bought a whole bunch of Greek bonds, surely they must have thought, they must have thought that the bilateral investment treaty between Slovakia and Greece offers them protection against anything going wrong. Because they are state investors, uh, they're not state investors, but they come under state protection, uh, they come from a protected jurisdiction, they engage in actions that are covered by the bilateral investment treaty because it is broadly defined to cover all sorts of things, including financial investments. So even though they bought their bonds in the midst of the Greek crisis and they should have known that they ran a good risk of not getting the bonds fully repaid, they do nonetheless have a claim against uh, Greece for the losses that they suffered in their position as investors. And I hope you can see the problem that we've got here. It will be difficult for Greece to say that it had nothing to do with their losses and they did this to themselves by the vote within the bond uh, group to, to accept the haircut. So the collective action clause that was introduced by Greece is the reason why they had the vote, which is the reason why they lost the money. So it's unlikely to be sufficient to fight this at the tribunal by saying we didn't do it, they did it to themselves through the collective action clause. Secondly, it's going to be very difficult to say we shouldn't, this doesn't constitute expropriation because this is a type of financial investment and there are risks within these things that people understand. Because as I've said at the beginning, definitions of expropriation have been ever widening and they've taken now um, the tribunals have taken the position that pretty much anything that violates investor arbitrations could potentially be considered a compensable expropriation. Now, what's the result going to be? We have a bunch of people here who bought bonds, as I told you, in the midst of the Greek crisis. So there's a good chance that they actually bought those bonds at a significant discount. If they bought them at a discount, it would be perverse if they're now suing at the investment tribunal and they expect these bonds to be repaid fully. So I think they might have, and this is a quite complicated technical discussion, but I think they will have, they have a good claim and they have good chances of success on the substantive grounds. But when it comes to the assessment of damages, I would find it perverse, to say the least, for the tribunal to award 100% value for bonds that they themselves must have bought at some type of discount. Because honestly, if they were buying Greek bonds in 2010 and they didn't buy them at a discount, then they should be suing their financial advisors. But what does this lead us to? On the one hand, you've got 
the intention of a government to bring in money, to create a positive environment for foreign direct investment, and they've got the mechanisms to allow this to happen. They've got things that make Greece an attractive destination for foreign investment, including giving people the option of investment arbitration if things go wrong. Enter the crisis, enter all this mess, enter the fiscal problems that Greece has, and it's trying to fight its insolvency by doing various things, one of which was uh, a haircut on the bonds that they have issued. Now, is this logical, the, the question is, is this logical to have arbitral tribunals determining things that are the significant consequences of economic policy? And would it be legitimate for an arbitral tribunal to come and say, no, 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 you have to pay the Slovakians 100% on, uh, you know, 100% of each euro that they spent to buy those bonds? And what is this going to do uh, to Greece that at the moment, you know, has already some fiscal difficulties and already owes money to everybody else as well? Now, this is, um, these are the sort of initial questions that come out of this. How an attempt to create a friendly environment for foreign investors seems to have morphed into a mechanism that seems to benefit investors all the time, regardless of the sort of policy challenges that the country is facing. And just in case you get the impression that I'm obsessed with Greece because I'm from there and, you know, this kind of feels bad to me, let's have a look at another jurisdiction. Let's move on to Spain and see what's happening over there. Um, do we have any students from Spain with us today? Because normally the LLM cohort does have a few uh, Spanish residents. Spain and their solar trouble. This is a wonderful picture of a solar park that, you know, if you believe Wikipedia, is actually in Spain at the moment. Spain has gone through a very significant crisis. Perhaps not as devastating as the crisis in Greece, even though, you know, I, I bet you can find a lot of economic analysts who are going to tell you that Spain is as insolvent as Greece is. But um, certainly they've gone through a lot of trouble lately. And um, what has happened to them is that they used to have a very, very positive environment for um, alternative energies. And they had invested very heavily in renewable energies, especially uh, photovoltaic parks, the solar parks, as the one that you see on the picture there. And they had actually put so much investment in this that they had become famous uh, for being the leaders in the field and, you know, super innovative and doing whatever they can to meet carbon reduction targets and so on. And everybody was very happy with them. The problem is that the deals that they had with the investors that were producing solar energy meant that they were paying a guaranteed price, regardless of what the market price was for electricity, they were paying a guaranteed price to the producers of solar energy. Obviously, when the crisis happened and Spain's fiscal position started to deteriorate, they found that they actually needed to pay a lot more money than they could afford. Uh, prices kept going up. Uh, the guaranteed prices were actually much, uh, you know, much more costly to them than the market prices. And they began to have a very significant deficit and they owed a lot of money to the renewable energy uh, firms. In order to deal with this and for them not to go bankrupt on account of, um, of this uh, debt, they decided to sort of phase out 
uh, the support that they were giving uh, renewable energy providers, um, they were offering something that are called feed-in tariffs. Um, they decided to scale those back and they reached the point last year where they abolished the system completely. Now, the problem with all of this is that, okay, they had like a very legitimate problem and they had a very significant deficit and they needed to do something about this. However, a whole bunch of foreign investors came and settled in Spain exactly because Spain was offering this very generous feed-in tariff. So when the system was altered and then eventually cancelled, you got a whole bunch of foreign investors that got very, very upset because suddenly they owned all these, you know, massive solar parks in Spain that were due to lose them money. After all the subsidies got removed, uh, these things are actually losing money. Um, So I can understand why the foreign investors and, you know, any investor in the solar energy in Spain at the moment is not particularly happy. Now, obviously, the result of all of this is that everybody went to their lawyers and they started complaining. And uh, if you want an example, the, the Secretariat of the Energy Charter Treaty, which operates in similar ways to bilateral investment treaties, but in a sort of regional multilateral setting for the particular field of energy, so the Secretariat of these people has already uh, registered 11 cases against Spain. And ICSID, which is the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes, has registered eight cases since 2010, and all of them are still pending. So pretty much every foreign investor who was present in Spain has now run off to uh, an arbitral tribunal, right? And is asking for compensation. Um, A lot of them have hired the big law firms. So this is a, a wonderful field to be in if you're working at a law firm. Um, Allen and Overy, for instance, is representing a group of investors uh, that are known as PV investors. These guys brought a claim in 2011 uh, to a tribunal. They are uh, arguing that they have suffered losses of excess of 600 million euros. Um, you've ho- you have another company that brought an action in the uh, Stockholm Chamber of Commerce. Um, at the Arbitration Institute there, they're arguing that they lost 60 million, uh, they're actually losing 60 million per year, and all of that money is lost, they say, due to violations of investor rights. Now, this is pretty horrible stuff, because if, in fact, all of these people are suffering all those losses, and they manage to pass on all those losses to the Spanish government, um, in order to get compensation for, uh, you know, for violations of their rights. What does this mean for Spain? What does this mean for Spain's fiscal position and fiscal, uh, Spain's budget? And is it going to be sensible to have to increase taxes, um, cut the pensions, and do all of these things that they've been doing in Greece, for instance, in order to pay compensation to uh, the producers of solar energy parks? And there's a difference between the situation in Spain and the situation I described earlier in Greece. In Greece, you also have some, you know, small innocent bondholders. There are no small innocent solar energy producers. All the firms that have gone and hired the big law firms and they are now in investment arbitration are all big, big corporations and they all know what they're doing. So I've been trying to figure out what the chances of success would be uh, for people who are bringing such complaints 
So I thought, you know, let's take an example of, um, let's have a fictional example of a virtual uh, solar energy producer, right? So let's assume that this virtual, let's call them virtual PV, right? Uh, Virtual photovoltaic. So if this virtual PV had entered the Spanish government in 2005, they would have entered in an energy sector that was newly liberalized. They would have had uh, very generous subsidies. They would have been able to obtain private loans with very good deals because the environment was very positive at the time. And they would let's assume that they went in there and they bought a lot of money and they built like a bunch of nice solar parks. Now, these people, by 2014, would be in a drastically different economic environment. They would have lost their subsidies. Probably they will need to pay back a lot of money to the Spanish government because of the retrospective cancellation of some of the subsidies. Um, They would probably find it very difficult to roll over their debt because the banks or whoever lent them the money is likely to ask for more money. Um, their own uh, commercial paper is likely to have suffered downgrades by the um, credit rating agencies. So uh, it would look very nasty for them in a space of you know less than 10 years. The environment that they're facing would be drastically different. Now, horrible it is, right? And we can be sympathetic. But which part of all of this is actually a treaty arbitration issue? Which part of it actually generates this, uh, you know, investor-state dispute resolution stuff that I've been I've been concerned about? Well, the Energy Charter Treaty, which is, as I said, this um, umbrella organization that guarantees uh, in investor rights in the energy field, um, offers you two key things. One is uh, fair and equitable treatment. The other one is protection from expropriation. Now, could somebody in the position of our virtual PV company go and actually obtain compensation on the basis of either a violation of of fair and equitable treatment or arguing expropriation? Well, it is difficult to say, but I bet they can generate a lot of argument in saying that they haven't been treated very fairly. The problem with kind of loosely termed things like uh, fair and equitable treatment or expropriation, is that you have developing definitions by arbitral tribunals without any set doctrine of precedent. Those of you with a legal background, you will know that the doctrine of precedent ensures the sort of predictable evolution of the case law. But this can only work within hierarchical systems. And investor arbitration is not a hierarchical system. It can happen with a number of different uh, fora, in a duffer, number of different arbitrations without any set appellate mechanism. Therefore, the whole thing is, is really very ad hoc. And you get uh, tribunals coming up with decisions all over the place that seem to have one thing in common. Um, that thing is that they all seem to be very investor friendly. But beyond this, you don't have any checking mechanism in how they decide. Um, it has come to mean fair and equitable treatment that the investor's legitimate expectations are not violated. 
Now, if you see it that way, you could easily say that, you know, virtual PV had legitimate expectations when it entered the market in 2005. And yes, they did end up getting those rights or those expectations ended up getting violated because now the environment is totally different. Equally with expropriation, you could argue that um, you don't need a direct taking. You don't need the government to come and assume control of your property or to kick you out of your factory in order to have expropriation. There's a bunch of other things that could be considered expropriation. And in fact, on this, there's a long, um, there's a long series of cases, there's a long series of arbitral decisions saying that things that don't actually reach the level of a direct taking, they are still going to be considered expropriation. Very worryingly, one of those things is the loss of your ability to make a profit. So when investors have been enticed to come in saying that this is a good opportunity for you to make some money, and then that opportunity is taken away by a drastically different regulatory environment, we've got a number of examples in arbitral tribunals when they've said that this change of the regulatory environment constitutes an indirect expropriation. Well, just in case you're thinking, well, you know, what's the problem with that? If they've got expectations, you ask them to come in, they settle, and then you violate those expectations, you should pay compensation. It sounds fair. Well, it might sound fair, but we're forgetting something. We're forgetting the fact that these countries actually don't have any money to pay. And should we actually accept the position that says every time you change your mind, you should pay compensation to the investor if the right to make a profit is violated. This puts a price on democracy. It puts a price on policy making. It means that the regulatory environment is set in stone at a particular point in time when the investors are coming in, and thereafter you don't actually have the chance to change anything. Is it reasonable to say that Spain should pay all that money and compensate uh, it's uh, renewable energy generators. Well, maybe they cannot afford this. Maybe they should retain the right to change their mind if they want to without having to pay compensation. Think about this in other contexts that have to do with en environmental protection. Say that you've got a government that's very keen on economic growth and not particularly interested in environmental protection. I don't know, like a government like this one in the UK that seems to be all keen on fracking and so on and doesn't seem to be very concerned about environmental consequences. Or, um, say, a government in a, in a nice sunny place that allows all sorts of hotels to build on the beach, you know. You've got a change of government, the other guys come in and they say, well, we don't think it's appropriate for you to, you know, to have licenses for fracking. We don't think it's uh, appropriate for you to build hotels on the beach. We don't think it's appropriate uh, to build, you know, casinos because we think gambling is bad. So you could have a change in policy that comes from a direct democratic mandate. Yet you come across this stuff. You come across bilateral investment treaties. You come across multilateral instruments that offer you protect that offer protection for investors, and they might mean that you can only engage in this change of policy if you're willing to compensate everybody for the loss of profit-making ability. Um, now, is stuff like uh, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership a solution to all this, or is it making things worse? 
Now I had um I had a little picture for this summer. Yeah, here we are. Um you're probably aware that at the moment the European Commission is negotiating with the Americans on uh, a big deal that this TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. Now the idea behind this is to offer um, comparable standards and expectations, uh, regulatory expectations on both sides of the Atlantic, which allows people to do business without having very significant barriers. So this is not only reducing, um, you know, customs duties and things like this. It's also re uh, reducing um, unbalanced regulatory standards, meaning that if you, uh, you know, you make a drug in the U.S., you would be able to market it in Europe, or you make a car in Europe and you'd be able to sell it in the U.S. without going through complicated regulatory procedures. So that part is all right, okay? Um, on the assumption, of course, that we, you know, we accept the American standards to be sufficient, which in many cases we don't. Um, but what about ISDS, uh, Investor State Dispute Settlement? Now, very bizarrely, they want to include Investor State Dispute Settlement provisions within the TTIP. The European Commission is very keen on this. The Americans, you know, are ambivalent about it because the Obama, for some reason, thinks it's a good idea. The Republicans are not as convinced. Now, why do you want ISDS in something like this? Why do you want an investment clause in a big treaty between the, the Europe, uh, between the EU and the United States? And why do you need to give investors the right to arbitrate in order to resolve disputes with the states? I'm you probably thinking about arbitration as a solution uh, with cases. Um, you know, with developing countries where you want to do business and you don't trust the legal system. Um, or you've got concerns about bias for the judges and so on. Now, are we really saying here that we need um, ISDS because the European courts are not capable of dealing with investor disputes? Are we really saying that we need ISDS in the TTIP because the, we don't trust the Americans to be unbiased? I mean, after all, the vast majority of people choose, um, you know, French courts for their commercial arbitrations. So suddenly we're saying that something that seems to be the most popular uh, destination for commercial arbitrations um, and, you know, things that go into the domestic court system without any trouble, that suddenly they're not suitable for investor disputes. It sounds fishy. Um, now, the European Commission has been arguing that they want TTIP and they want uh, the ISDS uh, clause within TTIP because this is going to be a way to rationalize the system. They're saying that we've left the definitions of rights to arbitral tribunals for too long, and they're doing it on their own without any um, overview, and they're creating these ever-widening definitions of rights. So the European Commission has been trying to convince us that an investment clause in a big treaty will actually provide more secure definitions of what it means fair and equitable treatment, what it means expropriation. And this is going to be binding on the arbitrators and also rationalize existing case law. Now, that's what the Commission is saying. Pretty much nobody believes them. Um, there's, a, there's a long line of people who are complaining about the TTIP negotiations arguing that this is so captured by corporate interests that there is no way 
that if we allow ISDS, this is actually going to lead to a reduction in the assault we have on sovereignty and on national policy discretion. Pretty much everybody who takes a critical view on the process is of the opinion that this is going to make things worse. It's going to, in a way, constitutionalize investor rights, take them away from the hands of local courts, take them away from the hands of local policymakers, and they're concerned that this uh, perhaps renders democracy irrelevant when uh, investor expectations or investor rights are in danger. Um, now, I tend to agree with the people who are worried about ISDS in, in the TTIB. I don't really see why we need them. Um, but the final question that I would like to address uh, today, and then we can perhaps have a discussion about all of this, is, is a more general uh, question. Um, is ISDS undermining recovery in general? And on the picture here, you've got... Um, Mr. Dysonblum, if I pronounce his name correctly, who is the Eurogroup uh, representative, and uh, Mr. Uh, Professor Varoufakis, rather, who is the new Greek finance minister that they met a few days ago when Varoufakis told him that uh, him and the Troika can you know, take a walk and the Greeks want to negotiate with somebody else. Um, now, we have a very difficult situation in the European periphery and in the south of Europe. We have very significant policy challenges, very significant fiscal problems. If we have investor-state dispute settlement, and if we actually promote such a mechanism for resolving arguments between states and investors, what are we trying to achieve? Are we trying to achieve a fair balance of interests between investors and states, or are we trying to protect the investors from democracy? Are we trying to protect investors from changes of policy? And are we trying to say that market rights are always superior to politics? They're superior to people's democratic choices. They're superior to what individual nations want to do with their space, with their policies, with their economies, with their societies. The, and this is why we have this, you know, rather uh, bombastic uh, title for this presentation, um, has investment arbitration finally become a tool for social irresponsibility? What is ISDS and why are foreign investors using it? Are they using it in order to get a fair deal because they're worried that national courts are always going to side with their governments? Or are they using it in order to protect their profit-making expectations not caring that this actually impoverishes nations. I don't think that Postova Banka could care less how the Greek government is going to get the money to pay any compensation award that they might get. If this means that, you know, Greek grandmas are going to collect even less in their pensions, I think it doesn't feature for them in the slightest. They're just thinking, we were lucky that Slovakia has uh, a bilateral investment treaty with Greece, uh, we're going to try our luck here. Um, maybe we'll win. If we don't win, maybe the Greeks are going to blink and give us a settlement anyway. But this is going to mean another few million euros that need to come from somewhere. Similarly, in Spain, I don't think that, you know, all the solar investors are doing it so much out of a sense of, um, you know, fairness or that their lives have been violated. They're doing it because they've lost money and now they've made perhaps some bad decisions in entering into that market and expanding so much. 
And maybe they they say that, you know, ISDS is now going to compensate them for bad investment decisions. And it's not the, something that actually is not the fault of the Spanish government, but they're trying to use the system in order to make it the, the problem of the Spanish government. But what is the effect going to be? Isn't this socially irresponsible? Isn't the use of these mechanisms and their, you know, perpetuation a way to impoverish nations that are all, already fighting very significant economic crises?